This year should be a blessing and a merit for the health and success of the families of Regina Bas Yosef Ruvain and Yeshaya ben Yisrael, Benjamin Wolf ben Tzvihersh, and Baruch ben Benjamin Wolf. Uh, and they all, should all see tremendous schus and atzlocha in all their endeavors <coughs> in the merit of this year. <coughs> we are now uh, what is it, today's Tuesday? Less than a week before Yom Kippur. I spoke about Rosh Hashanah last week. And what I want to speak about tonight, for obvious reasons, is about Yom Kippur. <clears throat> but I want to explore Yom Kippur in a way that's different. You know, to go really down into some of the ideas about what Yom Kippur really is, what its primius, what its inner secrets are, so to speak, about what you want your Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, really is all about. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> we know that every, basically, and I, and I asked this question on Rosh Hashanah, <clears throat> every Jewish holiday or any, any kind of time period <clears throat> that we commemorate is tied in some way to some kind of Jewish event, Jewish history, so to speak. And we, in a certain sense, commemorate that in different ways, but whatever, and so on, you know? So uh, we can ask ourselves, you know, what relationship does Jewish history have, or rather, what relationship does Yom Kippur have to Jewish history? And the answer is, you know, I think we know, uh, a lot of us know this, and so on, uh, is that when Moshe Rabbeinu received the Torah, he went up to Shemayim, right, for 40 days, and then he came down on Shiva Osbatamas, which in many ways became a tremendously tragic day, because the Jews sinned with the golden calf, and therefore was one of, probably, uh, like I, I gave a share on that, one of the worst days in Klein's world history, because man reverted to the way he was after the sin of Odom Harishim. He almost rectified it, failed, and the Chetu Egel, the sin of the golden calf, is what restored, I had mentioned then, the Tumor, the Zoyama, of the creation that Odom Harishim brought into the uh, world, the creation itself. Uh, so, Moshe Rabbeinu was in Shemayim for 40 days, okay, and then because the Jews sinned, he went up again into heaven, Shemayim, to try to beseech God not to destroy the Jews, which he did. And he was up there for 40 days again, you see, from Shivas to Thomas, until about Rosh Chodesh Elul, he was up there. And then he went up on Rosh Chodesh Elul a third time in order to ask the Rabbani Shalom that even if you allow the Jews to survive this tremendous chet, sin of uh, worshipping a golden calf, whatever the uh, nature of the sin is, <clears throat> that the Bansham doesn't uh, give away the ability of tikkun to some other nation. So Moshe Rabbeinu, for 40 days, from Moshchidish Elul until the 10th day of Tishrei, again was mispal, you see, that we should not only... It's one thing where the Bansham says, okay, I won't kill you guys, right? Fine. 
Okay, but what about our former status? What the Russian could do, and that's what Moshe Rabbeinu tried to prevent, is the Russian could say, okay, but you're not doing the tikkun anymore. It's gone. You know, uh, if somebody, if an ambassador sins against the king, you know, even if the king forgives him, it doesn't mean he makes him an ambassador again. That's gone. That honor is taken away. Uh, so Moshe Rabbeinu was very concerned that the honor that the Jews have, which is a unique status, that they bring God back into creation. So he was concerned that uh, the Moshe would not allow the Jews to continue and he would give it to some other nation, whoever that would be. You know, uh, it's not a problem for the Moshe to figure out who he's going to give it to. Uh, so Moshe Rabbeinu was mispal that third time that he, the Moshe should remain, continue to rem, let it remain with the Jews and that he should not give it to any other nation. And thank God for Moshe Rabbeinu and thank God for us. He was successful. And when you really begin to think about it, <clears throat> you realize something interesting. It just says an agav, which means as an incidental, you know. I mean, you, when the Jewish people have a leader, they have to have a leader that knows what's going on. It means going on in heaven. Because in many ways, he has to defend the Jews against what they do. And very often, obviously, uh, the Jews sin. We know that. And you need a, a sort of like a lawyer, a defense attorney. <clears throat> Not just a leader, but somebody who knows how to plead our case in front of the heavenly tribunal, in front of the Rabbani Shlom. And it's amazing that Moshe Rabbeinu always came through. I mean, it's incredible. You know, we don't know what he charged as a lawyer, you know, but he was superb in terms of defending the Jewish people, you see. So Moshe Rabbeinu, we see, was not just a leader, unbelievable leader, and I'm not even talking about his holiness and so on, right? But he knew exactly the lines that you have to use to evoke the Rachmanus, the compassion of God, and so on, you know? So I just as, this is just as a note to realize that, what, what, how is he acting? What's his role? His role is a defense attorney. And he thanked God for us, uh, he was successful. In any case, he was successful. And the Bansham said, okay, he was successful in, in uh, allowing the Jews to maintain their status as people who would do the tikkun, which is incredible status. And he, he then came down from heaven, Shemayim, a third time, which was, of course, the 10th day of Tishrei, and that was a day when the Rabbanu said, I'm going to forgive them as your words, and so on. And uh, that was the day of 10th of Tishrei, which is Yom Kippur, which is uh, obviously incredibly relevant, because that day of 10th of Tishrei became for all time a day of atonement, you see. <coughs> So that is the connection between what? Between uh, Yom Kippur and the uh, Jewish history and the historical event means the events that transpired with the Jews and so on, you know. Uh, so that's uh, a very important idea that that day we achieved probably the greatest kapara of all time when the Rosham did not in any way do away with us and he continued and he allowed us the unbelievable privilege 
of bringing him back into creation. Remember, when we talk about devotion, we're talking about an Ain Sof. You know, that this Ain Sof, this infinite being, a being beyond comprehension, allowed us to serve him and to bring him back into creation. So clearly that Yom Kippur, which was the first in that sense, is, uh, is, the, is the greatest day of atonement <coughs> we've ever achieved. So that's number one. But the second idea which I want to, well, actually, what I want to do is uh, just read a short dedication. But there's something else which is much more profound, which I want to introduce. Now, I'm not going to talk at length about this particular idea. I hope to give this, uh, this idea a treatment on its own in a couple of weeks to really go into it. Uh, you know, we often think, you know, we have challenges, obviously. We have challenges. We have needs that have to be met. We have things we have to do. We have responsibilities and so on. This, is, this of course, is all true and so on. So we can say that man has challenges and as a result of that, man struggles. That's the essence really in many ways of life is that we struggle in order to meet our challenges. So the question is this, which is an interesting question. The answer would seem to be obvious, but not really. Does God have challenges? It's an interesting question. You see, I mean, it's hard to believe that the Bunshim has challenges. Why? <clears throat> because the Bunshim created everything. So what challenges can he have? He can merely create a solution to whatever challenges he has. Can't he? You see? So what does that mean to say that the Bunshim has challenges? Well, obviously, from his perspective, the Bunshim has no challenges. He's the creator of all things. He gives existence to everything. Well, if you have the power over existence itself, it means that God is not part of reality. Reality is part of God. He determines reality. Now, you, you could spend a whole year thinking about what that means, that he's in charge of reality. <clears throat> but he makes the laws of reality, you see. So as such, obviously, the Bershom doesn't have challenges. Because like I say, even whatever is required he will merely create. It's not a problem, obviously, for him. But I'll tell you something interesting. From our perspective, the Bershom has an incredible challenge. Now, he obviously solves it. Remember, it's Kaviyochel, which means if it could be said that way, from our perspective, he has a tremendous challenge. And the way he solves that challenge is shocking. Now, what is that challenge, you're probably wondering. How could the creator of everything have a challenge? Well, obviously what it means <clears throat> is the reason why he has a challenge, because he has imposed voluntarily a strict code of behavior. So his challenge is, wait a minute, you impose that behavior on yourself voluntarily. Uh, you don't have to do it. So then the question is going to be, well, how are you going to overcome that? You see, that's the only kind of challenge that he could have. He, he created the challenge <clears throat> and he imposed it on himself. So he's really challenged by his own will in that sense. What challenge do I refer to? I'm sure everybody out there is very curious. 
What is that? And this is going to lead us into what Yom Kippur is really all about and how the Rabbi Islam solves this challenge. You see, and that you're going to realize, not today, but this challenge has occupied the Rabbi Islam for thousands of years, especially in the last 300 years. This challenge. Now, what is this challenge that I refer to? I will tell you. <clears throat> I gave a whole shit about the concept of what's called Namadik Sufo. Bread of shame. What is that? Without going into the depth of it, I gave a shit about that a long time ago. You know, maybe I should repeat it, whatever. But anyway, <clears throat> where the Russian wants to be native, Bishlemus. That's what he wants. That's his will. Why does he want to do that? We don't know. But that's what he wants to do. And clearly the Roshim is capable of doing that. <clears throat> so he wants to be Meitav. Meitav means he wants to bestow an infinite state of goodness on a human being. I mean, we're very glad he wants to do that, obviously. Uh, we don't know why, but that's what he wants. And he has revealed that to us in the Torah. It says, Lehetav And the Nevi'im talk about that in Nanamizim Vashchina that really what he wants is to give an infinite state of goodness, unbelievable time, so to speak, to human beings. <clears throat> but clearly he, he had to make a decision, which in his case is instantly and so on. <clears throat> will, will I give them this uh, state of infinite goodness, well-being, whatever you want to call it, right, for free, so therefore it will be considered a gift, or will I make them work for it? Effort. So therefore it's not a gift, it's a reward for doing something which they have to do. <clears throat> well, he, he decided, without getting into it, that he would only give this gift, whatever it's going to be, and we'll talk about that, <clears throat> if the Jews work for it. They have to expend effort toward its achievement. What happens if they don't? And that implies, wait a minute, if that's what they have to do, what happens if they don't? And the answer is, if they don't, there's no gift. There's no reward at all. Because you didn't do what you had to do. That's a very important concept. So what the Bersham did is single-handedly, he put the whole mankind into a risk situation. You see, now of course if they do it, then the reward is infinite. We cannot even comprehend what the reward is. Uh, but it comes with a risk. If you don't do what I say, you don't get anything. You see. Now, he imposed that restriction on himself. He didn't have to. In fact, the whole thing is incredible why he did such a thing. <clears throat> but he did do that, <clears throat> you see. And he will not deviate, basically from that law. That law is as ironclad as any law in physics. You know, if you jump off a roof, guess where you're headed? Down. You know, gravity doesn't say to itself, I gotta think about this, right? <clears throat> it will immediately drag you down and you'll die in the process, obviously, you see? So the law of gravity between matter and so on is what's called uh, inviolate. It always is. And so on. <clears throat> so the Russian made that as a law, you see, as absolute as gravity. Uh, that in order for you to get the future world where that reward lies, you must, you must work for it. 
you must achieve effort if you do what I say <clears throat> and so on if you do then your reward is almost limitless and it goes on for eternity if you don't you don't get anything you see now it sounds very harsh but it's not but I'm, I, again I want to bring out certain points but what's interesting about this is wait a minute what is that called this law so the answer to that it's called Midas Adin the attribute of justice what is justice really justice is that you do or you, what happens to you is always a result of your actions nothing ever happens to you unless you in some way caused that to happen so justice is nothing more than the result of your cause that's what justice is and therefore Midas Hadin is absolute justice you know uh, you will reap as they say what you sow right you put this down that's what you get to the exact amount that you put down or that you labored to do so therefore what the Rebbe Hashem does is he runs the world to Midas Hadin uh, and you can't say well you know maybe once in a while he just overcomes it or he just ignores it no the Gemara says if I recall in Bovakama whatever anybody who says that a Rabbanisham is Yavatru is, is a Vatron well he overlooks you know he said okay I won't do it now <clears throat> right is Yavatru Shinoisov well let his ears be overlooked okay the Rabbanisham promised you 80 years okay we'll forget about the 80 years we'll give you 60 uh, no the Rabbanisham doesn't do that he sticks to his word you see so the Rabbanisham uh, considers and practices absolute justice now that would seem to be very bad you see but what the Rabbanisham decided <coughs> and that's the real challenge because the Rabbanisham loves Klai Yisrael and he really also loves mankind but what's most dear to his heart is the Jewish people because they're the ones who will bring him back they're the Tikkun and they're the ones who obviously have done unbelievable amount of good, do good deeds and so on so <clears throat> the Rosham loves Klai Yisrael in fact we, we, it says uh, we make the bracha of Amoy Yisrael who loves the Klai Yisrael we cannot fathom if you think you can understand what love is you, have, you don't have an inkling of the love that God bears us we don't you see it's beyond our comprehension when the Ramosham says that he has a certain attribute <clears throat> what that attribute is so then if that's the case wait a minute if you love the Jewish people you've made their ability to be in the future world dependent on what contingent on what on their observance of whatever the task is and that's the law uh, so what happens if they don't deserve it what are you going to do you see what happens if mankind doesn't deserve it then you are in a certain sense not really but you know <clears throat> by your own statement and declaration you are, you are stuck that means you can't give them the future world I mean you're the one who made the restriction and if you enforce it it's over uh, but wait a minute the will of God is absolute the will of God is completely supreme you see and he wants the Jewish people to be in the future world in fact he probably has the same desire for mankind 
You see, except they have a whole different set of rules that they have to observe. You see, so we can now begin to understand that, wait a minute, he has an incredible challenge. He has to get around his Midas Adin. That's the problem that we see, you know, based on his own will and so on. How does he get around Midas Adin? You see, because it's really straightforward. Do the Jews observe? Do they listen to the rebel Islam? Or not? quite straightforward so what the Bershma has done we understand what the challenge is how does he subvert Midas Adin because he wants Kleisville to be an Oilem Habo you see uh, so that is really a challenge to God in that sense obviously from our perspective so the Bershma has devised as only he can different ways to get around that and later on, I'll give a shear. Uh, I think I, I, there's about at least 16 different ways that he can get around Midas Adim. Uh, but, for instance, I'll just give you one of them, right? One of them, for instance, is Rachmanis. Rachamim. Mercy. Compassion. Right? That's one of the ways. What does that mean? Because he saw that if he adheres to Midas Adim, that means you are immediately and totally denied Oilem Habo. So he doesn't want to do that. He wants to allow you to repent. Well, that is one of the ways he gets around Midas Adin. You see, <clears throat> in fact, we now begin to understand something very interesting. <clears throat> that this whole cycle of Yom Kippur Elul, Rosh Hashanah, the Aser and Yom Kippur, each one has its, and Hashanah Rabbah, each one has its built-in device that will subvert the din in, that, in a certain sense and allow a Jew to get into Ilam Habo. And that becomes one of the main ideas of what Yom Kippur really is. Yom Kippur is an extraordinary device to get around Midas Adin. It really is. And that's what I want to point out. And Yom Kippur is such a day that demonstrates the incredible, infinite love that God has for the Jewish people. Yom Kippur itself. In any case, uh, so let's then t take a, uh, you know, first understand. Uh, now, the Bansham therefore gave us a task. What is the task that God gave us? In a very simple and clear way. Well, the Russian works very simple. It's called Mida Kenegid Mida, measure for measure. You see, and if you think about that, measure for measure is absolute justice. You see, so imagine, you know, normally, for instance, you know, normally, if you hire a builder to build you a house, right? So he's going to charge you, obviously. So he'll build a house, right? And then I'll charge you whatever it is. Today it's very expensive. But, so let's say he says, okay, I'll build your house and you've got to give me a half million dollars. Fine. But obviously there's something interesting here. The half a million dollars does, has, has nothing to do with the house. It's two independent ideas. House and then there's two, uh, half a million dollars. Uh, so they're different. But the Russian works it much simpler. 
you see. The Bosham says, you know, guess what? If you build me a house, guess what? You will live in that house. That's your reward, is the house you built. <laughs> That's quite interesting. You see, so you, you get to enjoy or suffer depending on the quality of your work, right? <clears throat> the house that you built. In other words, what, we're really, what you're really doing is building your own house. And the house that you built becomes your reward. It's not something external. It is the house itself. You see, I, I, I like to use an example, for instance. Imagine you're walking by, and you're walking by a bank, right? And you see the bank, uh, you know, you see there's a, usually, I don't know if it's Wells Fargo or whatever, the, or Brinks, they're the guys, and they're bringing in cash. Because banks, you know, they need cash on hand and so on. So there's two guys bringing in huge amounts of cash, $100 bills or whatever, right, into the bank, and then they go into the bank and they put it in the vault. So you're walking by, and one of them says to you, you know, do me a favor, we're shorthand. We usually have three guys. Right now we only have two. Maybe do me a favor, help us bring in all this cash into the vault of that bank. And you say, hey, listen, if I can't make it, I might as well close it, right? I'll just carry it in and make believe that I can get it, <clears throat> and so on. <clears throat> anyway, and, the, and then, then the guy, the guard says, you know, but don't worry, I'll pay you nicely for doing that job. So you say, okay. And you begin to haul tens of thousands of dollars, which they have to bring into the vault of the bank. You see, <clears throat> and then you, you finish, fine, and you go back to the guy, and you say to him, okay, I finished, please, what, what reward will you give me for my effort? So the guard says, come with me, and you come with him, and he goes into the bank, into the vault, and he says, well, where's all the money that you stacked, right? And so on. So you point in one corner of the thing, and you stacked about half a million dollars, you know, in the hour or two that you uh, uh, stored it there and so on, you know? So the guy looks at you and says, is that the money that you stored, that you did? And you say, yes. So he says, well, I'll tell you what. That money that you stored, it's yours. It's yours. It's astounding. So it comes out that the task and the reward are identical. That's what the Bansham does. It's identical. What is identical? So the Bansham says, very simply, your job is to bring me back. How? How do you bring the Rebansham back to the world? And the answer is that you must behave in a manner that declares or acknowledges his existence. What is the aspect of his existence? Besides God, there's nothing else. And that's really the essence, as we see, the essential mitzvah, mitzvahs that we do. Everyone is nothing more than a behavior that demonstrates that besides God, there is nothing else. So then the Mosham says, okay, in Oilim Habo, what are you going to experience? You're going to experience me. To the exact amount that you demonstrated through your behavior of besides God, there is nothing else. That's the exact amount you will experience in the future world. You see? Same thing like the guy with the bank. He gets what he gathered and stored. You get what you 
displayed in your behavior in Ilm Habo. And that feeling or that experience is something we cannot comprehend. The enjoyment of that experience is beyond comprehension. Like it says in the Gemara, The eye has never beheld what is stored up for the righteous. Nobody knows what we get. Even Malochim don't have any concept about what Oilam Haba is like. Yet that's what we get. And it's in response to what we did. When you did the mitzvahs, you demonstrated right? By doing the mitzvahs. So therefore, that is the experience to that extent that you did it, you will get no Habo. You see? Very simple. That's how the Rebbe does it and so on. So it comes out that a mitzvah is really what's called a tikkun device. It is a device of tikkun. It's a rectification device. That's really what it is. That's what I call it. It's a tikkun device where you can experience enoid mevadoi. Besides God, there's nothing else, whatever that means. You can experience it by doing it in behavior. You see. So that's the logic of a mitzvah. You see. Now, what happens if you don't do mitzvahs? Instead, you demonstrate Yeshoid Mavadoi. Besides God, there's also me. Right? I can do whatever I want. You see? That's called a sin. But that's a demonstration that you're entitled to do whatever you want. That it's not Enoid Mavadoi. Besides God, there's nothing else. That there's also you and you can demonstrate your own will. That's bad news. <clears throat> you see? So that's exactly what I was talking about. That, hey, you just lost because you've demonstrated the opposite of what is all about so that's very bad so then the question is uh oh there comes the challenge how is the Marshall going to get this guy that demonstrated which means besides God there is this man that's what he demonstrated through his behavior how is the Marshall going to get him into and the answer is tshuva so what the Rebbe did is he created a concept called repentance. Now what is repentance really? Repentance is when you retract your testimony that was brought about by your behavior. Your behavior demonstrated that you think you exist independent of God. You see, that's what you demonstrated. What is tshuva when you repent? When you repent, what do you say? There are three things to repentance. One is that uh, I admit, I acknowledge that I sinned, which means I acknowledge I went against your will. I acknowledge that. That's vidui. The second thing, you have charata, you have true remorse for what you did, right? You really feel bad. And the third thing is you accept upon yourself never to do it again. Well, what have you really done when you do this process of repentance? What you've really done, repentance is right, is retract your testimony of Yeshayim Mavadai. Besides God, there's also me. You see, repentance is really a retraction of testimony. You see, it's, so what the Bershom did is an amazing thing. He created a behavioral situation where you can retract your testimony. Because when you sin, you said basically, 
Hey, I exist also independent of God. I can do whatever I want. My will is also independent, supreme. So he created a situation where you could do tshuva and retract that testimony. You see? And if you do, then the Bansham says, well, that behavior is also the same thing where you are acknowledging that I exist independent or I am the only one that exists and therefore you are worthy of Ilam Haba. Tshuva is one of the ways he overcomes his challenge. You see, we begin to understand what that is. He overcomes the concept of Midas Adin by supplanting it with something else that according to Midas Adin does deserve the future world. It's, the only thing is that it's a retraction, so Bansham considers it as if that's the only thing you did. He allows the former statement that you think you exist independent to be removed, you see. So in a certain sense, well, how does he do that? So there is what's called somewhat a, a deviation of, of, of Midas Adin because he removes the original testimony and he replaces it with this testimony, you see, which is also in Edmavadoi. Besides God, there's nothing else. You see, that's what tshuva really is. But like I said, it is one of the ways the Rabban Shalom does what? Meets the challenge. What is he going to do with Midas Adin? See, great. Now, here's the next question. Wait a minute. <clears throat> what happens if what? The man doesn't do tshuva. He sins, which means he makes a statement, I also exist independent and I can do my own will. But he does not retract that testimony, so it remains. So what's the Bajim going to do? How's he going to get him into Ilam Haba? You see? Well, it would seem to be more difficult. So the Bajim comes up with a third device. So Tshuva is called a second Tikkun device. You see? Which comes after you sin. And that's a tremendous chesed, kindness that God did. But like I said, the question is, well, what's he going to do for the, th you know, if the person doesn't do tshuva? So the Bershom therefore created the concept of yisurin, or suffering. Now we begin to understand something. Suffering isn't a punishment per se. You know, this is not retribution. God doesn't do that. Because God really wants you to be an Oilam Habo, you see. He's not interested in punishment. With him, you've got to get into Oilam Habo or you're out of Oilam Habo. It's one or the other, you see. He doesn't have to, there's no incarceration in that sense in Judaism. Uh, but he created a concept called suffering, that we can experience pain, you see. <clears throat> and pain from all sorts of directions, Right? physical pain, emotional pain, social pain, right? Bankruptcy, divorce, all kinds of bad stuff and we feel terrible pain, depression, mental pain and so on. He created that whole arena of ideas. Why? Because to suffer if you don't do tshuva is a way of what's called getting into ilam haba. How? You see, or well, what's the logic of it? That is a very good question. And here's the logic. <clears throat> you see, think about this. When a person, when a person uh, sins, right? There's two things that are happening. One 
is that he's exercising his will. That's number one. Number two, that somehow reinforces his delusion that he's somebody. You see, hey, I'm doing whatever I want, right? I'm exercising my will. And that reinforces the delusion that I must be somebody. You see? But that's the exact opposite that besides God, there is nothing else. You see? So sinning gives you a delusion that you are somebody. That's number one. The second thing that sinning does is it gives you pleasure. Or else why would you do this behavior? You know? So there are two things that you've done. You derive pleasure from your sin, right? And the second thing is it reinforces your delusion that you're somebody, which is the exact opposite of the testimony that besides God there is nothing else. Well, what does Yisurin do? So Yisurin has to undo what you caused. That's the essence of what God wants. So how do you undo it? Well, think about this. Imagine a guy's worth $100 million, which today is not even that much money. You think about the amount of money being thrown around by the United States and whatever and so on but he's worth a hundred million dollars right and all of a sudden he has a heart attack all right <clears throat> and of course you know most people who have a lot of money are deluded that there's somebody because look how much money it's not only that look what I can do all of a sudden he gets a heart attack right and now he's in a hospital in the CCU cardiac unit right and he's plugged in to many devices right what do you think he's thinking about who he is? You see? Well, what can he think? You know, he can't get out of bed, right? Just had a heart attack and he's plugged into all these devices. So being in that situation clearly tells him you're a nobody. You know, you think that you're somebody. If you were somebody, well, why don't you get off the bed and go and do what you want? But that is surin, or that situation of suffering clearly indicates to him that he's a nobody. And that's half the sin. Half the sin that we do, when we do it, is we think we're somebody. Forget about that the Bansham is the only one that exists. We think that we exist also. So what the Bansham does with suffering is he wants to remove that delusion that you're a nobody. Because if you were somebody, why don't you just get rid of the suffering? You see? So that itself is a kapora, you see? And, but Yisurin is something that we didn't invite. We don't want that, right? Uh, but it forces us to acknowledge the worth of our own being, that deep down, what are we really? You know what they say? If you were missing five cents worth of iodine, you'd be a complete idiot. That's what keeps you rational. And so on, you know. But in any case, the, so therefore what suffering does is it removes the delusion that you're somebody. Well, that's half the mistake that you're making, you see. And therefore, since you now understand that you're nobody, right, therefore that becomes somewhat some kind of tikkun to get you into Olam Habo. Even if you haven't realized God is everything, okay, that's next. But at least now you realize you're a nobody. You see? And the greater your arrogance, hubris, whatever, the greater is the amount of suffering that God needs to bring to break you. What does He want to break? He wants to break your delusion that you think you're somebody. Uh, you see? So because He does that, that's called a kapora. Because that's the main thing that God wants to remove from your mind. 
who you think you really are. It's a very important concept. So that's what suffering does. It attacks your delusion about who you think you really are. So at least it removes that. Even if it hasn't brought you to the hakara, the understanding that God is everything. That's next, you see. That's the logic of suffering, you see. It undoes the delusion that you've created by sinning. The second thing it does, right, is it, it undoes the pleasure. When you sinned, you had pleasure, right? And guess what? When you're suffering, you're having tremendous amount of agony and pain. So that's mida connected mida. You know, you need to, ev- to eviscerate the pain, or rather the pleasure that you've had, so the suffering itself it will atone and remove and undo the pleasure that you've had. You see? So we're looking at two things that suffering does. <clears throat> you see? So suffering then, since it does activate tshuva in the sense that it removes part of the delusion, is the third Tikkun device. So we now understand how all these things work. <coughs> Mitzvah is a direct statement, besides God, there's nothing else that you testify to, right? Tshuva is an undoing where you retract your testimony of what? That you think you're somebody, but really, besides God, there's nothing else. And Yasurin removes the worst part of the sin, which is the delusion that you're somebody. You see, so there are three tikkun devices, interesting, which is very important for us, you see, and therefore a person can get into Oilam Habo basically just suffering. And there are people, unfortunately, that are born and they suffer their whole lives and they don't even know why. But without getting into it, which is another chesed that God did, is Gilgal. He allows you to come back over and over again to undo what you did, you see? And that's one of the ways he meets the challenge, the uh, concept of reincarnation, you see, and, and, and so on. So this then is very important, that the whole concept of tikkun is you have to acknowledge in some way, number one, that you are nobody, and number two, that God is everything. You see? And if you don't do that, then you have to undo the sin, which is the deed itself, in terms of the pleasure and the delusion that you now suffer. And that is very important, you see, and so on. Uh, Now, which which is interesting, and the greater the delusion, the greater the suffering that you have to bear. In fact, uh, one of the uh, tzaddikim of the previous generation said that if a person says while he's suffering, I recognize that this is from you, and it's because I have wrong ideas about who I am, and I have to undo it, then he says, which is very interesting, okay, that the Bajon remove half of the suffering. It's very interesting, Segula, because why do you have to suffer so much? It's only to break the delusion. But if you admit that you recognize that, then the Bosham says, he doesn't have to suffer that much, I will take away part of the suffering. It's very interesting, uh, that the whole concept. <clears throat> but what does suffering really do in that sense? <clears throat> I will tell you, you see, it's <clears throat> a very interesting story, what, uh, you know, that suffering is not something that we want to necessarily remove, you know. 
The story is told about Napoleon. We all heard of Napoleon, right? The uh, Emperor of France and so on and so forth, right? That he was conducting a war, conducting many wars, but he was conducting a war, right? And uh, he, did, he was not aware of the plans of the enemy. So his camp of soldiers and so on was on one side of the bank, uh, and that was next to the enemy territory. So all of a sudden, he has this idea. What's the idea? He's going to dress up as a regular person and go with one of his generals who also dresses up that way. And they actually go together. They sneak across the river, Napoleon and this general, and they go to the other side in the hands of the enemy. Amazing. So he figures, where's he going to get all the information about what's going to happen? So he goes into a bar, right? Who frequents a bar? The soldiers, because they need a drink between the battles and so on, right? So he sneaks into a bar, him and the general, and they take a seat all the way in the back, right, where they're not observed, and they want to hear what the soldiers are saying. And you know, soldiers, once they start drinking, they loose tongues and so on, and they say, yeah, tomorrow we're going to fight them here. And you know, he wants to hear the information that these people are saying when they're drunk. So he does that, you see? And they're sitting in the back, Napoleon and his general, right and uh, they're listening right incredible all of a sudden one of the people who's at the bar you know he's drunk but he turns around you know looking at the people in the bar and so on obviously it was pretty packed and all of a sudden he sees Napoleon and the general so all of a sudden he stands up in shock he says hey guys that's Napoleon now remember He's in the enemy territory amongst at least 100 soldiers, right? It's very bad news for Napoleon. So he starts saying, hey guys, that's Napoleon. So they all look at him and say, what? That guy's Napoleon? You remember Napoleon was very short. Napoleon Bonaparte, very short, so right? So all of a sudden everybody turns around. Nah, he can't be Napoleon, come on. So the guy says, I'm telling you that's Napoleon because I was once taken prisoner by his uh, uh, army and so on and they put me in jail and the jail had a window and in the window I saw Napoleon walk by he was reviewing his troops and I saw him what he looks like and so on and I'm telling you guys that's him and all of a sudden everybody stops the whole bar hundred soldiers right with all their weapons right and they all look at Napoleon because obviously this guy seems to know what he's talking about. Now Napoleon knew that was curtains, as they say in English. I mean, it's, it's over with, right? Not only did they, they, they you know, they, they're going to win the war, but they're going to get Napoleon. You know what prize that is? So he, 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 he realized it's over for him. So all of a sudden the general that he's with gets up, stands up, and he grabs Napoleon by his lapel right and he takes his fist and he puts it right into the face of Napoleon he socked him right into his face he says what you're not going to pay me the money that you owe me and this general starts beating up Napoleon beating him up I mean really doing a good job you know and Napoleon was not a very tall guy you know and he's like falls down and he gets beaten up further you know and this, this is going on for the next 15 minutes 
can imagine what, what this guy, general was doing to Napoleon. And all of a sudden, one of the guys says, that can't be Napoleon, you know. Could you imagine if it was Napoleon and that other guy, he's beating him up? Come on, would Napoleon ever allow that? It's impossible. You see, so they all say, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about, and they all turn back to their drinks, right? So what happens? So obviously Napoleon and the general slink right out of the bar, or right out of this bar and so on and so forth, and they cross the river and they go back. And this general is saying to himself, I'm finished. I just beat up the emperor of France, right? I mean, it's over with. So they go back into the enemy camp, I mean, to, I should say, in the camp of Napoleon and so on, and, uh, and the general says to himself, I'm finished. So, Napoleon, so uh, a couple of hours goes by, and all of a sudden, there's like 50 troops that stand in front of the general's tent, and they say, Napoleon wants you to stand in front of him. And this general says to himself, it's all over for me, right? Because I just beat up the emperor of France. So he goes to Napoleon and he's sitting and he's standing there. And you have Napoleon and you have this whole entourage. I mean, he's the emperor of France. And even if he's conducting a war, you imagine the honor that they gave him and so on, right? So he says, what you did was a terrible thing. I mean, you beat me to a pulp. I'm going to pronounce a sentence on you. But before I do, I want to ask you something. When you were beating me up, what do you think I was thinking? He asked that to the general. <clears throat> when you were beating me up, what, what do, you, do you think I was thinking as I was getting clobbered? So the general says, well, I'll tell you what you're probably thinking. If we ever get out of this, I'm going to make mincemeat out of this general. So Napoleon said, no, I wasn't thinking that at all. Why? Because I realized what you were trying to do is destroy the credibility of that guy who pointed me out. And the only way you could do it was to do something to me that was so outlandish that this could never be happening to Napoleon. So every blow you gave me saved my life. So what do you know what I was thinking about? I was saying to myself, hit me harder. Because if you don't convince these guys that I'm not Napoleon, all right, we're all finished. We're doomed. So I actually hoped that you would hit me harder over and over because you had to convince these people, you see. So what I want to do is reward you for this brilliant idea that you had, even though, you know, he's all full of bandages and so on, you see. <clears throat> that concept of Napoleon is really the concept of Yisurim, you see, we don't understand. The Barsham doesn't want to punish his people. He certainly doesn't do that. He doesn't want to inflict damage, agony, and anguish. Of course not. But he has to do it because that's the third Tikkun device. You see, and in order to get over the challenge that he has of Midas Hadin, he has to do this. So it's interesting that when a person suffers what he has to say to himself, please, Rabbanisham, do what you have to do. Because that's the only way I'll get into Edom Haba. Don't stop, even though it seems to be contrary to what I really want and so on. But you say to yourself, don't stop. Do what you do and finish it off so I can get into Edom Haba. You see, that's really the way 
uh, somebody has to look at Yisurim. I know it's very strange, and it's certainly contrary, you know, to what we would think. But based on the logic of what I just displayed, told you, that's really what Yisurim is. It is the third Tikkun device, that obviously there are not enough mitzvahs, and there are not enough tshuva. So what's the version going to do? He needs a device, Midas Adin. That's his challenge. And that's the way you fulfill, or I should say you satisfy, Midas Adin, the attribute of justice. I thought that was a very interesting way of illustrating this whole concept of these three Tikkun devices. Now, one of the ways, which is we are now encountering, that the Bershom does this, right, that he does this in the sense that he uh, has to resolve the challenge is the whole cycle of what? O Yom Kippur. You see, he has to do something. How does he resolve the challenge? He does it in incredible ways. One of the ways which I had mentioned on the Rosh Hashanah share of last week is that he, like I said, he has to take an accounting where is the Tikkun itself? Where is it? Please listen to the Shia before. Where is the level or the status of Tikkun in creation? And he has to adjust, he has to evaluate that and adjust, you see. But the interesting thing about that is he doesn't have to tell anybody. He does it in an instant of time. Not only that, but it's simultaneous to every atom in the Bria which is something we cannot even begin to fathom what that even means, and so on, you see. But he didn't have to tell anybody. He does it and finished. And the consequences, of course, will emerge. But the Boshim decided to tell us, Rosh Elul, I'm going to judge the entire creation. And I'm telling you, I want you to do tshuva, to influence the verdict. You see? So that's the way the Bershom handles the challenge of Midas Adin. By warning you, by alerting you to what he's about to do. Like I say, he doesn't have to do it, but he does it because that's the one of the ways he meets the challenge. He's going to tell you what he's about to do. And therefore he's hoping that you're going to input it, right, by doing tshuva. That's the first unbelievable solution, how he gets around it. <clears throat> you see? Second solution, which I mentioned last week, is the shofar. That if we blow shofar, the shofar is a device where he arises from the courtroom of public, where all the malachma and the sultan, who is obviously, uh, what he called, uh, being makatrig, prosecuting, and he stands up and goes into his hidden chamber, and he executes whatever he wants to do. So, as long as, because the Sutton is merciless, he's absolute din. The Sutton is midas adin, totally. And the Russian doesn't want that, because he wants Kleisville to survive. So he's got to stop the Sutton. But he can't dismiss him, because he created him for this purpose. So what he does is he has Osplo Schaefer, and therefore what happens is, he gets up from that courtroom and goes into his private chambers, right? <clears throat> and does what he has to do without kitrugim, although he does want to satisfy justice, but it's a whole different way. Maybe he'll spread 
the punishment over many years or he won't do it to you physically he'll do it to possessions there are different ways that he does it and so on where he can exercise mercy Rachmanus, right? since he no longer has to confront and answer to the prosecutions of the sudden very important idea that's an incredible act of chesed or as we're now looking at it a resolution of Midas Adin you see then the third idea is in case you didn't do tshuva on Rosh Hashanah right you have a Sarasame tshuva that's the appeal you see he gives you another nine days or eight days whatever right in order to do tshuva it's not like okay you got an hour and that's it no you got ten days total where you can do tshuva that's an unbelievable chesed is a Sarasame tshuva you see, the 10 days of repentance at the Rabbani Shem is not only, he's, he's not far away, he's near you. He's waiting for your tshuva, you see. Uh, so he's trying to encourage you to do tshuva. So that's another form of what? Of chesed, or rather how he resolves the Midas Adin problem, <clears throat> right? And now we come, okay, now we come to Yom Kippur. What does he do on Yom Kippur? <clears throat> you see, that's the question. Well, there are two things I want to mention about Yom Kippur. One of them is extraordinary of what the Rebbe did. One of them is called that the day itself is Machapev. <clears throat> Rebbe, Rabbeinu HaKadosh says, a very interesting statement. He says that the day itself is Machapev. Which would seem that even if you don't really do tshuva, but if you live to go through Yom Kippur, and I would imagine to participate in some way, that itself has an influence on bringing an atonement or a kapora. Now exactly how it works is not clear, but there's something about the kedusha of the day itself, the holiness of the day of Yom Kippur itself, that effects an atonement. Uh, you see so that's an, another chesed but then there's the other chesed that he does the real resolution is that he looks at the sultan and he says you got a day off you cannot be makatreg on this day in fact the gematria of ha is 364 why? because the sultan cannot prosecute we know the sultan has three jobs he's a yetzahara where he tries to get you to sin. And the second, that's the first. The second thing is he's a grand, uh, 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 the attorney general in the sense that he's a prosecuting attorney, right? That's the second. In that way, he's called the sultan, the adversary, prosecuting attorney. And the third thing is the Malacham that he executes the judgment. Not necessarily that he kills, but he he's also executes the judgment. <clears throat> you see, <clears throat> Now, he's always working those jobs, except one day a year, which is interesting, on Yom Kippur, the Sutton cannot be makatred. He's dismissed, which is astounding. Why? Because not only is there no Kittrug on that day, but remember, there is still a Yetzirah, and there's still a Malachamavis, you know, so you can't play around with Yom Kippur. But there's no Kittrug. So the question is, okay, but if he still is Malachamavis, and he still the eight Sahara, what do we benefit? I'll tell you what we benefit. Because what happens if you do a tshuva 
right? You're saying, well, you know, I used to do this, this, this sin, right? So you're thinking about it, and you say, you know, I'll really try not to do it again, but I don't know if I'll last. And if I don't last, okay, I'll go right back to it. What kind of tshuva is that? But it was a hearer. There was a thought about regret. There was a thought about a change of behavior. You see? Now, if the Sutton was prosecuting, what he would do is he looks at that particular tshuva, and he laughs. He says, you call this a tshuva? You know, you call this tshuva? This guy's not even doing tshuva. He says so. He's moving his lips. But that's about all he's doing. There's nothing in his heart that he really wants to change. So how could you even consider this as a tshuva, as a repentance? You see, that's what would happen if the sultan was makatreg. But the Rebbeinu dismisses that. What does that mean? That means any hearer, any thought about change of behavior, about getting closer to God, about having some type of regret, is accepted. Even though on a regular day of the week, right, they would laugh it off. You see, but on Yom Kippur it's accepted because there's no opposing force that rejects that tshuva. That's a tremendous chesed of Midas Adin. Tremendous. Because it means that no matter what we do, as long as there's some thought, as minute as it could be, of change of behavior, the Roshan will recognize that as a tshuva. As a tshuva. And not just dismiss it out of hand. So what that does, it saves us. You can't be uh, believe the incredible kindness of what that does. And that is the way, one of the ways that the Bansham deals with Mizadin. You see, and so on. Because it allows us to do what? To have to that the Bansham will accept any form of change of thinking. You see. In any case, that's what this another device of how the Bansham deals with Midisadin. You see. Now, I want to tell you something. If you ask yourself, which which is very interesting, you know, okay, what do I have to, what's the essential idea of tshuva? Two ideas. One, I will tell you, is a story with the Zvila Rebbe. The Zvila Rebbe was a Rebbe, he was a Balmephis, a real Balmephis. I mean, he did miracles. It was incredible. I can tell you one story about him that make your hair stand up in terms of what he did and so on, you know? I just very rapidly, because it's incredible. Mm. There was somebody from his congregation that went home. The guy was in Russia. This Vila Rebbe was in Russia and so on. Um, and he went home and all of a sudden he comes into his house and he finds this Goy, Russian Goy. He's on the kitchen floor and he's dead. Obviously, he came to steal. He must have had a heart attack. And he died right in the guy's kitchen. So the guy said to himself, Gewalt, terrible. Because if they find out, they're going to accuse me of killing him. And then there goes up a grum. They went about rush under the czars or whatever. I don't know what to do. So he goes running back to the Zvila Rebbe. Right? Who was his Rebbe and so on, you know. He says, I don't know what to do. It's terrible. There's some Russian guy who's dead in my kitchen. You know? And so on. So the Zvila Rebbe looks at him and says, Wait, let me tell you what to do. Go back. To, it was, uh, I think it was on Shabbos. That's when it occurred. So he goes back to the... Uh, so he tells the guy, Go back to your house. Go into the kitchen. Your wife is probably making chalant. Go into the pot of chalant. Take out some of the chalant. 
and open the mouth of the goy and put the chont in and then wait. Can you imagine that? So he did that. He goes back to the house, right, takes the chont and he puts it into the goy's mouth and this goy's dead, right? And guy stands back and all of a sudden the goy gets up dead. This is... <laughs> So my guy gets up dead and he goes outside the house, goes into the forest, and he drops dead. You here, even if the guy didn't arouse to be living, but it's astounding. Anyway, no good for this Vila Rebbe because it got out that this Rebbe just performed an act of Triasamesim, right? So he had to run away from Russia. Because this is no good. I mean, could you imagine? People find out this is the kind of person he is. So he ran to Eretz Yisrael, right? And he went to a shul, sat in the back there. Nobody knew who he was. And finally, a short while later, some guy walks into the shul. And he's looking around. And all of a sudden, he recognizes Vila Rebbe. And he said, do you have any idea who that man is? And they cut out that this Vila Rebbe is now in Eretz Yisrael. And of course, uh, he... He became famous and so on, you know. <clears throat> so anyway, I want to tell you what this person said because I want to add to his credibility. Uh, you know, Zvilera was a very interesting person because he used to work for a living. Yeah, I think he had a shop of some sort. You know, he's a rebbe, more than a rebbe. He's a Balmoifus, pulled off Triasamesim, resurrection of the dead. Anyway, so um, he used to work. So a chassid comes over to him and says to him, I don't stand Rebbe, can you tell me something? So the Razila Rebbe says, yes. I don't say, what's the difference between you and I? Really, you know? You work and I work. You say Kiddush on Shabbos and I say Kiddush on Shabbos. What's the difference? Why are you the Rebbe and why am I the chassid? That was a rather, very interesting uh, a question to the Zvila Rebbe. So the Zvila Rebbe looked at him and without batting an eyelash, he said the following, I will tell you what the difference is. And it's a profound comment because the guy's question was quite good. He said this, when I, am my, when I am in my shop, which I have, right? I'm thinking about the Kiddush. I really want to say Kiddush. I want to be in the holds of God. I want to be serving Him. That's really where I want to be. Right? Except I have to work. Whatever. And therefore, I'm here. The problem is, the difference is, that when you're saying Kiddush, you're thinking about your shop. You see? You think about, did I make enough money this week? And so on. Do I have too much inventory? And so on. That's the difference. It's not what you do so much or where you are. It's where is your center? Where do you want to be? You see, where is your desire, your drive to be? So my drive is Ruchnius. That's my center. And that's where I want to be. It happens to be I'm working and so on. Fine, so I have to obviously do a good job. But really, so that's, I'm a man of the spirit. I'm a man that wants to serve the Rebbeinshem. I want to be in the palace of God. Not interested in being in the shop. You, however, you're in the shop. And that's where you are, even when you make Kiddush. Right? You're making Kiddush, but you don't think about the Kiddush. 
the glory, the unbelievable stature of what it means to make Kiddush, what it means to invite Shabbos into your home. You're not thinking of that. You're thinking about your business. That's the difference. That is a very profound understanding. What the Rabbana Shalom wants is, what do you really want? Where do you really want to be? You see, what do you really want to do? So what the Rabbana Shalom wants, he wants you to say, I am your soldier. That's really where I am. That's where I, where, where I, I really want to be, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, and that's the tshuva of Yom Kippur. Of course, on Yom Kippur, what do we do? Right? We bang our head for the sin of doing this, for the sin of doing that. But of course, that's important. But that's not the real tshuva. The tshuva is, where's your center? Where do you see yourself? Are you a Jew that is part of God's army? Right? Or are you part of the physical earth? And once in a while, you're thinking about the Rabbana Shalom. The Roshan wants dedication, devotion, loyalty. That's what he wants, you see? And of course you do the achet for each sin and so on. But that's not really the tshuva. The tshuva is, where are you? Who are you, really? And that's what we see from the Zvila Rebbe. Now, in a practical sense, right? Uh, I want to just mention this, which is important. How does the Yetzirah get away with it? How? How is it that, you know, right after Yom Kippur is over, everybody's rushing to Davmarav and go home to eat? I understand that, right? But why is it we always turn to being who we were before Yom Kippur, after Yom Kippur also? Why is it our resolves to do tshuva, repentance, doesn't last? What is the problem here, you see? Which is an interesting phenomenon. Somehow it doesn't last. We always go, go, we always go back to doing what we formerly did, which is obviously not very good. <clears throat> Why? So I'll tell you something very interesting, <clears throat> which is a very important psychological concept. You will always behave in terms of what your unstated and unconscious goals are. Always. A man's behavior is always consistent with his real goal. And most of the time, our goals are not even stated. They're unconscious. Many times we're not even aware what we really want. You see. So if that's the case, then the goal of the unconscious is what? Let's say, is to continue doing the behavior. To have pleasure. Make a lot of money. Right? And, and enjoy life and so on. That's the real goal of the person. But it's not even conscious to him. He fools himself in saying, well, I really want to, you know, uh, learn Torah and do mitzvahs and so on. Yeah, there's partly that, but the goal essentially is not that. Therefore, even if you say you're going to do tshuva and Yom Kippur, it doesn't last because it clashes with the real unconscious goal. It's called cognitive dissonance. That is why. So, of course, we don't change because we don't really want to change. But because of the moment of Yom Kippur, we have to change. You see, because it's Yom Kippur. And of course, we want to take advantage of the fact that there's no Sutton, so any tshuva is okay. But it's not something we really want to do. You see? So what you, a real tshuva is only if you change your goal. You see? You have to change the way you behave in general. You see, your goals. And then the behavior of change, right, will be consistent with 
the, 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 uh, with, with the goals. You see, that's why people don't change their goals. They try to change their behavior. Mistake. You have to change your goals, who you want to be, like the Zvila Rebbe said. You see? And then, automatically, your behavior will be much easier to change, and it will conform, you see, to what you really want, uh, the, the real change of tshuva. Very important psychological principle. Look at your goal, not at the immediate behavior, because the immediate behavior is a cover-up to what your goal is really. That's really the explanation of why people don't change after Yom Kippur. Second thing, and I will end with this, what is the greatest weapon of the Sultan? I will tell you, I will reveal to you the greatest weapon of the Sultan. And if you know it, you can fight it. If you don't know it, then you're caught in the trap. What is the greatest strategy that he has? And I will tell you, man is a very intelligent being. Very intelligent. And he basically knows what the score is, as they say in English. You know, really what he wants, who he is, what he wants to do, and, and so on. But the problem is this. Man thinks. How many times do you ask yourself, what am I doing with my life? Where am I going? What have I accomplished, really? I'm getting older. Time is running. What have I really done? Uh, that thought to evaluate your time, to evaluate your deeds, right, is a very threatening idea to the sudden. Very. Because many times if you begin thinking of <coughs> what your life really is, what have you really accomplished? What do you really want to do? What do you want to, you know, where, where do you want to go at the end of your life and so on? What have I done with my life, right? Uh, you'll change. Because you're intelligent. You realize life has to have meaning. This isn't just a trip through here to enjoy some steaks or whatever. There's meaning to this, especially when you consider what Judaism is all about. That the life itself has unbelievable meaning and it has purpose, you see. So that thought is very dangerous to the Sutton because he's the Eight Sahara. He doesn't want you thinking these ideas. So what does he do? And this is how he gets everybody. He distracts you. He has you buy a cell phone. Right? And guess what? What are you doing with your cell phone? You're always on it. Do you have any idea how much distractions that is? I mean, I can go on and on with this idea. The cell phone is the worst device ever made by man. Why? Because it completely involves you. You're immersed. I mean, you see, the, the joke is you see a picture where three people are sitting on a bench and each one, they're not talking to each other. They're all looking at their cell phones. In fact, if you ever see a crowd of people, almost everybody's on their cell phone. But they're not on their cell phone for three minutes. They're on it the whole day. <clears throat> people can't live with their cell phones. They take their cell phones right to bed. In fact, there's even a, 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 a disease called, you know, a mania of cell phones. You can't leave it go. It's a terrible addiction. Why? Because the sudden wants to distract you. Don't think. Don't think about who you are, where you're going with your life, or what have you accomplished. God forbid you to think about that. It's funny that the sudden should say, God forbid. But in any case, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, this is what people do. So all of this, 
You know, I, I, was, I was once in a restaurant, so I had to use the uh, facilities, the restroom, whatever you want to call it, right, and so on, you know. So I go in, whatever, and so on. So all of a sudden I hear somebody talking in one of the stalls, right? So there's this guy in a stall doing what he normally does, right? And he's talking on a cell phone. So I said to myself, this is incredible. The guy can't even take a minute out, right, to do what he has to do. It's unbelievable. He's got to have a cell phone even then, right? And, and in a car, it used to be in a car when you were driving, you could think about what your life is all about, what the meaning is, where you're going and so on, and evaluate it, right? Today, it's all about cell phones. You know, it's about radios, cell phones, right? Internet, that's destroying us. You do not realize the distractions it, uh, it does to people. It stops them from evaluating their life. As far as I'm concerned, that's the greatest device ever known that will destroy a person, and it's the greatest friend and ally of the Sutton. So what I suggest is be careful. Don't let that cell phone or any other kind of device take you over where you no longer think about you know, what you should be doing, you know, and so on. Maybe I should be learning more, have another Seder. <coughs> and this is what kills <coughs> everybody. So I'm telling you, you know, I'm telling you what the greatest strategy of the Sultan is. He doesn't want you to think because he knows if you think, you're going to come to the conclusion that a lot of my life is wasted. So how can I change it? That's the last thing he wants. So he needs to distract you with all kinds of shtusim. And one of the greatest devices that will distract you is the cell phone. And today, everybody buys a cell phone. They buy cell phones that cost $1,000. They want the best that can have the internet. I mean, could you imagine? Until now, you only had the cell phone and you had your people that you talked to. Now, you're tapped into the entire world all the education, the chat rooms, I mean, it's unbelievable. You have the world in your hand, literally. You're no longer alone. So what a, what a device that will distract you. It's absolutely incredible. Please be aware. And let's make this Yom Kippur, right? Let's make it easier for the Rabbani Shalom, Kaviyochel, so to speak, to solve the riddle of how do I, you know, mitigate Midas Adin and truly try to bring the Mashiach this year. Thank you.